Thanks for having me. Um, a little bit hoarse Monday night. Lost my voice a little bit. Um, but anyhow, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, it's really I mean, it's exciting to get to talk about this. Uh, I have a unique vantage point in the sense of I, mean, I was a swim coach from the time I was like 18 to 22, and I was a teacher, and I've been a youth minister for about seven years. So I have about 14 years of kind of being involved with kids and being involved with parents. And, you know, I, like uh, Joe said, like seeing the best and seeing the worst. And um, it, I've come to realize, especially as a parent now, anytime you talk about parenting, you really have to drench it with the gospel because I don't think there's any place where a person feels more inadequate and more helpless and powerless than as a parent because there's this sense of it's my job to, you know, to guide and form this child and if I screw up, I'm going to ruin their life. I'm going to, you know, the, the, the train is going to go off the track and I'm going to ruin this child. And, um, and you feel this sense of ultimate responsibility. And that's kind of like you're on the footsteps of the kingdom if you feel hopeless and powerless and inadequate because that's showing your need for Christ and, and, and your need for the gospel. Uh, we have a c- couple of girls who live next door to us that my wife leads a Bible study for. And the one girl, she, her parents are both licensed counselors and they both have seminary degrees and they have 20 years of experience of doing student ministry and also doing um, clinical counseling. And so if there's like anyone in the whole world who should be like the perfect parents, it's this girl's parents who live next door to us. Well, this girl and her sister are both in counseling right now. And um, their their parents are, you know, like fully aware of this and their parents are, you know, kind of like, uh, in, in a healthy way, not in an unhealthy way, they're kind of you know, hearing from their kids like the feedback of what they're going through. And because of their background, they can identify like, oh, this is, this is how we screwed you up. And this is what we did. And, and this is why you have this compulsion or this anxiety or this depression and so on and so forth. And they're like, and we, you know, we knew that these things would lead to that, but we couldn't help ourselves. And so it just goes to speak to like we all are utterly dependent upon um, the intervention and the grace of the Holy Spirit in informing our kids. So I kind of start off anything about parents by just grounding us in the reality of the gospel. Um, what um, you know, what, what I'm going to talk about tonight will probably be very valuable if you have teenage kids. It'll be valuable if you have if you don't have kids yet or you have young kids. But you know, um, I don't think this is the kind of thing where you know if your kid is now 25 or 35 or even 45, where it's like, oh, it's game over. You know, like you had your shot and it's over. So I know I have a friend who is, he had a you know, dad who was an alcoholic and a workaholic, and it was very absent growing up. And um, he had all, you know, all kinds of issues and baggage as a result of that. But when he, around the time he was 25, there was a real shift in their relationship. And his dad, like, became, like, very present in his life and very consistent. And he's not, like, dad of the year. He's not a super relational guy. But this guy's dad, like, consistently gets together with him, knows what's going on in his life, and there's been all this healing and redemption as a product of it. So um, I just say that, like, don't, don't have a mentality that if your child's in college now, it's like, oh, well, you know, that season is over, and it's all, you know, everything's lost. Because it's, I don't know, there's, there's, always, um, uh, there's always potential for, like, redemption in these relationships. Uh, okay, so tonight I'm going to talk about um, kind of what the norm is when it comes to parenting. Um, uh, you know, as, as documented by research and as kind of validated by my own experience. And um, what I kind of have to add is I, you know, I have hundreds of conversations with kids every year, so I can kind of see these themes 
that recur and that seem to be prevalent amongst students, particularly in relation to their parents. Um, and then I'm gonna, we're going to look at, kind of juxtapose what the norm is with um, scripturally how we see God operating as a father to us. And um, if I could encapsulate what I'm going to have to say in, in one short sentence, it would be, your child needs a father, your child does not need a coach. Child needs a father, your child does not need a coach. Uh, and and that, um, that saying comes from a story. Uh, when I was a swim coach, there was this dad who was a college swimmer. He swam at Princeton. He was Princeton has like a top 15 swimming program. It's an elite swimming program. This guy was a senior nationals qualifier. Uh, he was the most qualified person on the, school, on the pool deck to technically talk about swimming. And his son, um, you know, his son was kind of struggling a little bit. And uh, I went to him and I, was, I asked the dad, you know, like, what, you know, what do you think is wrong with his stroke? And the dad said real firmly, he said, look, I'm here to be a dad. I'm not here to be a coach. He's like, you're the coach. You do whatever you think is necessary all I want to do here is be a dad. And, uh, and you know, you'd see the way he uh, interacted with his kids at swimming was he, um, you know, his kids get out of the pool. He would encourage them. He'd have their water and their goldfish. Uh, you know, he would, he would never say anything about their performance. Um, and then, uh, he, you know, if their kids were being pouty or they were um, not being a team player or being a bad sport, he would get involved and he'd be like, no, that's not how we... That's not how we treat people. That's not how we behave after we lose. We don't have a temper tantrum. But when it came to like their performance as a swimmer, he was, you know, his hands were off. Well, meanwhile, there's another dad who would sit there with his own stopwatch, waiting for his kids. And his, I remember, oh, it's just painful to think about his like six-year-old daughter and his eight-year-old son getting out of the water, and he was just sitting there grilling them about, you know, you got to finish stronger, and, you know, fingertips out, and da 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 and giving them these motivational speeches about, you know, I'm, I'm like listening to all the sound bites 20 years from now in counseling when their kid's about to go on medication, um, just all the stuff that this dad is saying. And, um, you know, and he, I could see his kids, like, tear up every time they would, you know, if they'd have a bad swimming out of the water. So he was functioning as a coach, even though he was a parent, and the other dad was functioning as a dad, and, um, and, and we'll see here when we talk about what the norm is for parenting about why this whole coach-parent, uh, why there, there's this kind of um, juxtaposition. Um, there, is a, there is an author, well, the norm when it comes to parenting in, in, in this culture, and when I say this culture, I'm talking about you know, the United States. It is, it's a parenting for performance. It's parenting to make your child a productive contributor in society. Uh, I have a parent of, of contemporaries of mine, uh, you know, my wife gets pregnant, and, and the, the mom goes, you know, let me tell you what my mission was. My mission was to make productive contributors to society. That's what I was going for with my kids. And she said that with a sense of, like, this is my advice to you. I'm kind of proud of this. Like, I've done a good job of that. Look at my kids. They're gainfully employed. And, and that really does uh, kind of synopsize what the mentality and the mission is of a lot of parents, is to, to produce performers. And, um, and this is backed up by um, tons and tons and tons of research that looks at the emotional, um, the emotional and social state of kids, particularly as it pertains to their family. Um, there is a, a sociologist, his name is David Elkin from uh, Tufts University, he has tracked this over, uh, over 30 years. He first, he wrote a book in 1981 called The Hurried Child. That was his first edition. 
and then um, and then he did a second second edition in 1988, and he did a, a third edition in 2001. And he basically said that the uh, concept of child competence that is what parents are going for, child competence, to produce competent children. And so he wrote in his 2001 edition, um, the third edition where he'd been studying this in a longitudinal manner, he said, many of the problems that I described in the preface to the second edition, which was 1988, have only gotten worse. The concept of child competence, which drove much of the hurrying of childhood in the previous decades, is very much alive today. Parents are under more pressure than ever to overschedule their children and have them engage in organized sports and other activities that may be age inappropriate. Unhappily, overtesting of children in public schools has become more extensive than it was a decade ago. Uh, in, in some communities, even kindergartners are given standardized tests. Media pressures to turn children into consumers have also grown exponentially. Um, so he's saying that this problem of child competence has gotten, has, is worse than it was in 2001 than it was in 1981. I'll tell you just uh, experientially, it's a lot worse in 2012 than it was in 2001, back when I was a swim coach and a teacher. Um, and then uh, he says it's evidenced by over-programming and over-scheduling of children. And he says there's an emphasis on producing performers. Performance is what we're after with the kids. And so he wrote another book, and this kind of looked at this idea of uh, the concept of child confidence um, as it related to the effects it had on children and uh, in, the, in, in relation to their family. He said, like all those needs are not being met over the long term, postpartum children and adolescents are feeling victimized. They believe that they must suppress their own needs for security and protection to accommodate their parents and society's expectations that they may be independent and autonomous. Like modern mothers, postmodern young people either turn their anger on themselves or at the world around them. Um, so he's saying that you know, this need for security and protection, that's a need to be parented. That's a need to be known as, as a person. And he says that that is being made a secondary matter. The primary matter is that they become autonomous and independent, that they become competent, as he says in his other book. Okay, so... A couple more little bits here. There's a man named Chap Clark. He's a PhD. He's actually a Christian. He's at Fuller uh, Theological Seminary. He's a PhD in psychologist. And he, um, he wrote a book that, uh, about five years ago that looks at this, the hurried child, and he makes a little bit of a revision, um, especially in light of this, this child confidence issue becoming even more intensified. He says, I agree with Elkin's findings in The Hurried Child. However, I prefer to use the label abandoned rather than hurried. As Ron Powers and many others note, adolescents have a longing that parents, teachers, and other adults have ceased as a community to fulfill. The reasons are many and varied, but this concept of systemic abandonment of adolescents as a people group seems to capture the widest range of descriptors used by careful observers of adolescents and adolescents themselves. So he is saying that, um, that, that what the uh, emotional experience of kids who are a product of this child confidence culture is that they feel abandoned. Um, and, uh, and, and, and this is kind of, this is further, there's a, uh, these authors, William Mahady and Janet Bernardi, they're experts on Generation X. So that's kind of like you know, late teens, early 20s, people in that category. And they say you know, in, in their book about uh, you know, the condition of Generation X, they say the mantra of Generation X would be this, we know that no one really needs us. So basically, if, you're, if the focus is on per creating performers, then what's going on there is there's basically objectification. Uh, children are not being kind of dealt with as human beings. 
they're being dealt with as uh, performers and producers, kind of like you know this term in business, human resources, not human beings, human resources. You know, um, what can we get out of you? What can you produce? What you know? What can you generate? And so the product is they feel abandoned. They feel uh, they kind of there's a sense of worthlessness that's created by this because they're not seen as a human being. They're seen as a producer. And so I, I'm, I'm saying all this, and I saw it's very depressing and and whatnot. I, I just say that that's the norm. Okay, if without being intentional as a parent, without repentance, without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, that's the way we're going to go. Our default mode is to go with the flow. Our default mode is to walk in the ways of the world, unless with the Holy Spirit we go in a different direction. And so now what I'm going to talk about is looking at God as a father, God as a parent, and um, and, and how, um, you know, how that contrasts with the norm. And, um, and you know, first off, my wife's like, honey, you're going to need to tell these, these dads that you're not telling them not to be a Little League coach. Um, I'm sure you probably got that because I plan to be a Little League coach. Like, I like to do that. That's something I'll enjoy. It's obviously we're talking about a way of parent, two, two ways of parenting. Um, but now, as we talk about God as a father, one thing to be clear of is um, the getting into the business of trying to imitate God is, is generally contrary to Scripture. Um, there's this term, it is, I mean, it's true. There's this term in biblical interpretation called exemplary exegesis. And it's trying to distinguish, like, when is it that Jesus is calling us to imitate him? And when is it that Jesus is showing us that we're not him? You know, someone like Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. Yeah, it's probably exemplary exegesis. So there, there, hardly, there are very, very few examples of exemplary exegesis of when Jesus is actually calling us to imitate him. Um, and one of those is when Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. Sure, he calls us to be a servant. Um, but most of the time when Jesus says, like, your righteousness must exceed that of the, of the Pharisees, or be perfect as I am perfect, Jesus' is, point in that is to say, is to show us, you can't do that. You know, get down on your knees. And so as we go through this, um, I, I, you know, we're not trying to say, you've got to be like God, or you've got to be God, because we can't do that. What a proper reaction to say, you know, um, I'm not like that, and I really need the Holy Spirit to help me be that way. Or, you know what, I used to be that way, and I'm moving in a different direction, in a good direction. Thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit is at work in my life, and I'm being sanctified. Um, so anyhow, so I have five, five little characteristics here that are pertinent to kind of uh, what we see and hear from kids. And so we'll kind of blend that all together. The first is that the Father knows. He's a knowing God. And uh, there are two levels at which um, the Father knows. The Father knows cognitively, he knows the details about us, and the Father knows intimately in a relational way. So in Latin, you have two. You have this word skio, and you have this word cognosco. Skio means you intellectually, you cognitively know information. Uh, Cognosco means that you know relationally, you know biblically. It even has sexual connotations in some contexts. And so both of those have value as it relates to your children both knowing intellectually what's going on with them and knowing their interests and knowing their details and knowing when they have tests and all that kind of stuff and knowing them intimately. Uh, It says in Matthew 10, Are not two spirits sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many spirits. And so one thing I would encourage is 
knowing about your kid, knowing what's going on, knowing who their friends are, knowing what classes they're in, knowing who their teachers are, knowing when they have a test, knowing what their role is in the play, being an expert in terms of information about your kid. And as it says here, like God knows the number of hairs on your head, and it demonstrates value. That communicates value to your child, that you know what's going on. Like uh, this, uh, this is, you know, that I know, I, before I got married, I didn't know anyone on the Food Network. But that I know now, like all Jada and Pauline and Bobby Flay and, you know, Chopped and Food Wars and all this kind of stuff, communicates to my wife that, you know, I, I know her stuff, I know what she's interested in. Meanwhile, that my wife, on Tuesday, was giving me the rundown. I'm like, yeah, this is what they were talking about on the opening drive this morning on Jocks. And then you should have heard Tammy on Feinbaum this afternoon. My wife did not listen to sports talk before she married me. God bless this poor woman. But, it, but I'm like, wow, you know, like she's listening, she's listening to the opening drive. Like she knows my stuff. And so anyhow, you know, I know this one, uh, one father and his kid's all about Xbox. And he, I mean, he, he hates video games. He does not like to do video games. But he's like, you know, my kid is, he really, he was all in the world of Warcraft and, and, and all this stuff. And so he, like, started to learn about World of Warcraft. And, like, but, you know, started to know, like, how you, he started to play some and, you know, read up on it. I know another dad who is very, very intellectual, not into sports at all. His son is all up, all up in Alabama football. God bless the poor man. He got a Tider Insider subscription. And it was, it was t- totally out of his character. But it was just the point. Like, I'm going to know... I'm going to show my kid that he's important to me because I'm going to know the things that he's interested in, even if it's not really my jam. So, anyhow, wow, that was totally youth minister mode there. <laughs> even if it's not my jam. Wow, anyhow, um, yeah, you take the boy out of the ghetto. You can't take the ghetto out of the boy. Um, anyhow, take it from the boy who raised on the hard side of Cherokee then. Um, anyhow, so, uh, so anyhow, that's one level of knowing. Another level of knowing is, is knowing your child at a heart level. Um, great if you know all these details about your kid. It's better and more important if you know your child intimately. Um, I am, I am, you know, I, I, thanks be to God, I do have a gift to connect with kids who are teenagers. Um, it is not because I'm cool and it is not because I'm fun. I am like, when you, we go on these like trips with their other youth ministers, I promise you I'm the least fun youth minister there. The, the reason I, if there's a reason I can connect with kids, it's because I, I know how to ask questions. And, and if that's one thing you can learn about knowing your child, it's becoming an expert at asking questions. Asking questions that are, uh, relate to their emotions. Asking questions that relate to their spiritual life. So, oh, you've got a test today. How are you feeling about your test? Um, so, your girlfriend, hmm, y'all broke up a couple weeks ago. How's, how's that going for you? Really? Really, you're over it? I mean, I've seen you. You look pretty down. I mean, do you, do you feel rejected? You know? With, yeah, so on and so forth. Questions that kind of engage them at the heart level. The Lord knows us at the heart level. You know, it, it, Jesus says, um, says, I am a good shepherd. I know my own. They know me. Just, just like the Father knows me and I know the Father. The intimacy of the Trinity, that's, 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 a, that's a thing we're, we're gunning for in terms of knowing our kids. So you're anxious about your test. Well, do you feel like the Lord's with you in this? Like, do you feel like the Lord is... Is, you know, uh, have you engaged the Lord in this? Do you feel like the Lord's big enough if you were to make an F on this test or you were to make a 17 on the ACT? Um, so anyhow, engaging your kid at an emotional level, engaging your kid at a spiritual level. All right, number two, uh, a father, uh, father, God the Father, is always there. Uh, he's omnipresent. 
Obviously, this is not a case of exemplary exegesis. We, we cannot always be there. Um, God says in Jeremiah 23, 23, I am, I am a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off. Can any hide himself in a secret place that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill the heavens and the earth, saith the Lord. Um, you know, it is, it's great if you spend time with your kid. It is not great if when you spend time with your child, you're on your Blackberry the whole time, or you're listening to talk radio all the time, or you're talking on the phone all the time, or you're doing work. Um, it's so funny. Like My child is only 15 months old, and I stay, I, I'm, my off day is Friday, and my wife will work on Friday, so I stay home with my baby. And I noticed like when he was like six months old, you know, he's like little in his little catatonic state, sitting in his you know, little chair. And I, uh, I like was always, you know, talking on the phone, sending a text message, watching ESPN, maybe doing a little work, maybe sending some email, maybe hitting a little Bama online. And I was like, goodness gracious, you know, like I'm already an absent dad, you know. And I know he's only six months old. I know he's probably not internalizing this, but. Um, but, you know, I noticed that. We'd be in the car, and I would be like, oh, thank God he's in a car seat. He can't crawl anywhere. He can't get into anything. I turn on my sports talk, or I listen to a sermon, or I talk on the phone. I'm like, you know, I'm totally tuning out my kid. Like, it is so natural for me to not be present, even though I have eight concentrated hours around my baby. So, I don't know. I've started leaving my computer in the car um, on Friday and turning the ringer off. And when I get in the car... Only with the help of the Holy Spirit, I, I don't turn on talk radio. And I try not to talk on the phone. But anyhow, um, and let me say this. Like, kids notice. Kids notice, like, what their parent is doing when they're around. I, I have plenty of kids who talk about how, you know, I spend time with my dad, but he really is always on his Blackberry. Or, you know, yeah, my dad takes me fishing, but we really don't talk any when we go fishing. Like, my dad is so... Kind of, there's, there's, he's stewing, he's so preoccupied with whether it's work or whether it's his, his issues or whatever it is, that he's in another place. I know a dad who travels more than anyone in the church. And this guy's international traveler, and he's the most present father I know. Um, he used to have a practice of like taking his kids on a daddy date every third week. That, you know, A kid would have two hours of concentrated time on Monday night. And I was like, we're going to go get ice cream, we're going to get food, we're going to do whatever you want to do, and it's just me and you. And, you know... Uh, his kid, he may be in Beijing, but his kid's taking a test and, you know, shooting him a text, hey, I'm thinking about you, I prayed for your test. He, he is very, very present, even though he's on the road all the time. And so I, I just say that, like, being present is not just physically being there, it's emotionally, mentally, you know, in every way, being there. All right, next. Uh, this is the one that's probably going to surprise you. Uh, the father is a disciplinarian. Um, says in Hebrews 12, 5 through 6, My son, do not regard lightly the, the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I promise you, your child will never tell you this, but your child wants boundaries. Your kid wants to be disciplined. I know we had this kid who used to be involved with our ministry back in the day, and uh, single mom, mom, not to be... Judgmental was very preoccupied with her own world. The girl, some of her friends would in some ways envy her because she had a credit card. And if she could get a ride to the summit, she could get anything she wanted. There was never any, like, she, I'm not kidding you, she would go to Saxon Avenue and buy, like, $800 handbags. This is a, you know, a kid who, when they were 14 years old, 15 year olds doing this. No reproach, no reproach from the parent. Uh, the kid 
<coughs> a lot of nights would um, stroll down to the village, you know, get whatever she wanted from La Paz. Um, kid never had any kind of like, kid could come and go whenever she wanted. And uh, uh, kid also, I think, is probably allowed to drink by the time she's about 16 around the house. That child is dying for somebody to tell her no. She is begging for someone to tell her no. Um, your kid will not tell you this. Oh, another story. You'll probably know the person. I'm going to say it in honesty, but you'll know who it is. Um, a kid that I've been involved with for a long time. Great kid. Both of his parents died uh, a few years ago. Two days after they died, I'm playing tennis with him. I ask him, you know, do you, do you already miss your parents? He says, yes. Uh, and I said, what do, you, you know, what do you miss the most? And he says, I miss, that they, I miss them being on my case. This is a really rebellious kid. His parents were always on his case. And the thing he missed the most when his parents had died, two days later, is I miss that my parents are not on my case. I miss that they're not disciplining me. When we discipline our kids, when we give them boundaries, when you give them a curfew, when you limit their cell phone usage, when you say no computer during the week or no TV during the week, you are communicating to them that they are valuable, that their life means something to you. It means enough that you, are, you want to be a steward of it. Um, and it means that you notice what they're doing and that you're paying attention. So your, um, your kid will, will always, always rebel when you put down the boundaries because they're a totally depraved sinner just like you and me. But they, um, but they long for boundaries. They long to be disciplined. It gives them security. It gives them comfort. And it, it uh, communicates worth to them. All right, number four, we've got uh, this and one more. Uh, the father is complete in his roles. Okay, God is father. God is son in the person of Jesus. And God is also a husband. He is the bridegroom of, of, uh, bridegroom of the church. Isaiah, um, ooh, forgot the reference here. Oh, it's in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah. Um, it's in the late 50s. <laughs> it's in the servant section of Isaiah. Um, it says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. <coughs> for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Okay, so God refers to himself as a husband um, as it relates to the nation of Israel. Okay, so God has these roles, and God, because he's God, is perfectly complete in all of those roles. Um, your child needs, for, uh, you are a, a son of God, you are a husband, you are a father. So you, you have these same roles that God has, and um, your child uh, very much needs for you to be complete in your roles. Um, your role as a, as a follower of Christ, as a son of God, uh, I know these uh, three girls, their, um, their dad, you know, he's fair dad, not a super relational guy, kind of a workaholic, but they talked about how secure they felt growing up because their dad is very consistent in his relationship with Christ. They, they noticed that their dad would have a devotional time every morning. Um, they would go to church on Sunday, every Sunday, and uh, they would pray before meals. And it was clear that, like, the relationship, and this was a good, like, moral man, um, just not a, a relational wizard, but, um, but it was clear that Jesus had huge priority in, in the life of their dad. And they had this great comfort knowing that their, God, their dad was dialed into God. And so their dad was complete in that role. Um, we have a role as a, as a husband. I can remember uh, like 
10 years ago when I first moved back to Birmingham. I went and visited uh, Oak, Mountain, uh, Oak Mountain Presbyterian Church. It was on Father's Day. And the, the pastor, um, the preacher that day was Tom Caradine. The whole sermon, 40 minutes, if you're going to a PCA church, like 40 minutes is like a, it's like a, it's like a short sermon. Um, the whole 40 minutes was about, uh, about loving your wife on Father's Day. The whole thing was, if you want to love your kids, love your wife. Uh, one thing that I see a lot of, I don't mean to be melodramatic here, but if a husband is not his wife's best friend, if a husband is not his wife's husband, then the daughter becomes the wife's best friend, and the son very often becomes the wife's husband. Uh, there is this um, emotional incest that I see too often where um, dad is, there's just not a lot of intimacy between mom and dad. Dad may be like really present with kids. Dad may be, maybe he's even present with God, but there's, there's not a lot of intimacy with dad and wife. And wife has this need for intimacy, and she goes, whoosh on the kids and consumes the kids. And so the kids are left bearing this burden that is intended for a husband. Um, and that's, in, that's <coughs> it's not intended for them. Um, so, um, yeah, if you, if, if you want to be a, like a good dad, then first, you know, seek out the Lord and consistently seeking like a devotional life and a relationship with Christ and seek out an intimate relationship with your wife, and then your role as a father will flow out of that. We, I, I, I say that because a lot of the feedback we get with kids is, my, my mom dumps all of her baggage on me, and I just do not know what to do with it. And, and it's largely because there's not a dad to dump that on, they're dump, dumping it on the kids. All right, final. Last one. The father is righteous. Uh, I'm not talking about righteous in the like moral sense that like God is good, God is a perfect integrity. I'm talking about that God is lacking nothing. God is complete. And so if you're a believer, then you have the imputed righteousness of Christ. You are, you are lacking nothing. Uh, you measure up perfectly because of what Jesus did on the cross. All of your moral imperfection, all of the ways in all of your life that you're going to fall short, all of that is attributed to Christ on the cross. And all of Jesus, all the ways that Jesus perfectly measured up to the law and perfectly measured up in every way, in every relationship, in every regard you could ever imagine, all of that is attributed to you. Um, you know, they, they say that women, their struggle is that they feel like they're just too much. They're too much for anyone to handle. Whereas men, their big struggle is they feel like they are just not enough. Just not enough. And so the righteousness of Christ, living out of the righteousness of Christ is living out of the completeness in every regard that Jesus has given us. Um, two ways that this, I mean, this helps us in every way, but two ways specifically based on experience. One, uh, living out of your righteousness enables you to be a parent who can admit his, his shortcomings with their child. Um, so when you lose your temper with your child or when you there is that day when you're, you know, you're around your kid and you're on your Blackberry all day. Because of the righteousness of Christ, you are freed up to say, hey, um, buddy, I, I lost my temper in the car and I really apologize for that. Or, hey, man, you know, I was thinking about it. I really wasn't as present as I should have been this afternoon. You're really important to me and I really apologize for that. That demonstrates and communicates the gospel to your kid more than you can ever imagine that you can be vulnerable and admit that you've messed up. I'm not saying get into the, the, the dirt of your, 
you know, all of your baggage, but just these little incidents where you mess up, it frees you up to be honest and uh, to be a person who's demonstrating the gospel. Finally, um, it frees you up from trying to wrap your identity around your child's performance as a means of dealing with your own inadequacy. I can remember as like when I was a swim coach um, or just even as a youth minister before I had kids, seeing parents where it's like, hey, look, your six-year-old is not going to the NBA. You know, like, hey, your child who's, you know, (laughs) who's got, you know, 14 hours of rigorous academic activities as a four-year-old, Harvard's not going to take them next year, okay? Um, and so I can remember just sitting there kind of on the sidelines being like, God, these parents, they don't realize that they're trying to, you know, work out their own inadequacies on their kid, and they're just objectifying their kid, and blah, blah, blah. You know, and then I have a baby. You know, and I'm sitting there, you know, with little four-week-old, little Cameron, and rocking him. And, and so, the, you know, it starts going through my mind. It's like, you know, those Quanjo boys who are offensive tackles at Alabama, they were playing soccer when they were like four years old. And you know, they're like, they like are six foot six and six foot eight and they've got these great feet. I'm like, you know, Cameron is big. He's going to be a big kid. Like, I'm tall. We don't, he's going to play soccer early on and work on that foot coordination. And then, you know what? Like, he could, you know, maybe he'd be a good enough athlete. Maybe after his senior year, you know, we could send him to one of those, you know, really elite prep schools up north. He could do a fifth year at Andover. And he'd get noticed by an Ivy League coach. And, you know, he, there he go. They're just ticket into, into Dartmouth or Princeton or Harvard. Like, there you have it. And it's like, oh, what do you know, Cameron? Like, here you are, the neurotic parent who's already doing this, and your child's four weeks old. You know, and it's like, oh, and what do you know, Cameron? All of your, like, dreams for your child, huh, they're all related to your inadequacies or your perceived inadequacies that you weren't a good enough athlete or you just went to Wake Forest, you didn't go to the Ivy Leagues. You know, and you're, and you're already, it is so natural for me to want to live out or, like, fight my, my sense of inadequacy through my child. And so the righteousness of Christ enables us to say, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Like, if he's going to be an artist or if he's going to be a C student or if he's not going to play sports, hey, that's who God made him to be, and I can uh, celebrate and embrace that, and I don't need to use my child to find my own action. The, the righteousness of Christ says that I am, I am complete, and, and there's nothing that's going to add to that. And so that's the final thing. And so I'll just close, close by saying again, whenever we go through things like this, there's, um, there's just all this acute sense of, um, of you know, like, guilt or I'm messing up, I can't do this. And if, that, if that's how you feel right now, then you're in the right place uh, from a, in, in, on one half of the equation. And the other half of the equation is I'm hopeful and I'm joyful because I know that Christ is at work in my life. If Christ is convicting me, uh, then the Holy Spirit has a promise that he's going to make me more and more into a person like him. And he's going he's to make me, and you know, God help me, he's going to make me into a more present dad um, and when I'm not, he's going to free me to be the kind of person who can admit my shortcomings to my child and, and demonstrate the gospel in that way. So I'll pray for us and we'll close. Um, Lord, uh, we're just really thankful that you're a perfect father and um, that our hope is in that. And we're also really grateful, Lord, that uh, we're going to mess up our kids and, and you're their father. And we trust you with that, Lord. We trust you to be the father of our kids. We trust you that you're going to be the ultimate one who's um, in charge of forming our kids. And uh, we just raise our kids up to you in that way. 
And uh, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd be at work in our life, that daily we'd be repenting. Um, every day we'd know our need for you more and more, and uh, every day we would, we would surrender to you and uh, live out of your grace and, and live out of the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask you to pray in Jesus' name. Amen.